Welcome to On Call for God. I'm Jose Rodriguez, your host, and this week in the news, Prime Minister Netanyahu reiterates no Palestinian state, no Hamas hostage deal offer. And uh, another one that's coming up is the European Union ministers are meeting as the Ukraine pleads for help amid mounting death toll. These and more stories today on On Call for God. On Call for God begins right now. No Palestinian state, no to Hamas hostages deal offers. Prime Minister's statement followed criticism by members of his coalition. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu again rejected the idea of creating a Palestinian state when the current war against the Hamas terror organization in Gaza comes to an end. He stated his position during a Sunday evening public address and also reiterated his opposition to different versions of a new hostage deal with Hamas that have been floated in the media and by Israeli politicians in recent days. Netanyahu's comments followed controversy and criticism from his coalition partners after U.S. President Joe Biden suggested on Friday 
that Netanyahu might support a demilitarized Palestinian state in the aftermath of the war. In his comments on Sunday, Netanyahu again thanked Biden for his support, but stressed that he would always insist on Israel's vital interest, which in this case was total victory over Hamas, and to ensure that Gaza never again constitutes a threat to Israel. Gaza, he said, must be demilitarized under Israel's full security control. I will not compromise on full Israeli security control of all territory west of the Jordan River. This is the same position he's upheld despite pressure in the past, which would have resulted in, quote, the establishment of a Palestinian state that would have constituted an existential, existential rather, danger to Israel. Regarding recent reports of renewed negotiations between Israel and Hamas about the release of hostages, Netanyahu repeated his vow that the return of all Israeli hostages is one of the main goals of the war. However, he added that the military pressure is a necessary condition to achieving it, while rejecting the conditions offered by the Hamas monsters, which he called capitulation terms. <laughs> Hamas is demanding in exchange for the release of our hostages the end of the war, the withdrawal of our forces from Gaza, the release of the murderers and rapists of the Nukba, and leaving Hamas in place. Were we to agree to this, he says, our soldiers would have fallen in vain. Were we to agree to this, we would not be able to ensure the security of our citizens. We would be unable to safely restore the evacuees to their homes, and the next October 7 would be only a question of time. I am not prepared to accept such a mortal blow to the security of Israel, therefore we will not agree to this, Netanyahu said. Finally, the Prime Minister declared, we are not giving immunity to any terrorist, not in Gaza, not in Lebanon, not in Syria, and not anywhere. This statement can be seen as a jab at Iran and Hezbollah in Lebanon, as two Hezbollah members in Lebanon and five members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria have been assassinated in the past few days. In Europe, the European Union ministers are meeting as Ukraine pleads for help. European Union foreign ministers began meeting in Brussels on Monday to discuss the future of European support for Ukraine, which needs more ammunition to fight invading Russian troops. The gathering comes while the Polish Prime Minister is in Kiev amid more bloodshed as Russia has accused Ukrainian forces of attacking a market in Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine, killing at least 25 people and injuring 20 others over the weekend. Speaking ahead of the foreign minister's meeting, Borrell made clear that Europe's attention to Ukraine will not be drifted away by the Israel-Hamas war. He stressed the fact that we are engaged in looking for a solution in the Middle East doesn't mean that we're not continuing to support Ukraine. He told Ukrainians, don't worry, don't worry. 
The Ukrainians don't have to be worried. European support continues as strong as ever, and it will continue. Burrell also spoke amid concerns that Ukraine's lack of ammunition will increase its losses on the battlefields. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers are believed to have been killed and injured by both, on both sides since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 22. There are also concerns about a mounting death toll among civilians, with Russia accusing Ukraine of killing and injuring scores of people when shelling a suburban shopping area in the Russian-controlled city of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. The Ukraine military has denied they attacked the market, and Russia's claims could not be independently verified. However, $54.5 billion in European Union aid for Ukraine has been postponed after Hungary vetoed the move. At the same time, about $60 billion in U.S. aid for Kiev has yet to be transferred due to political wrangling. It comes despite North Korea being accused by British intelligence sources of supplying weapons to Russia in breach of international law. Iran is also involved in, with Kiev, saying that Russian forces attacked with eight Iranian-designed Shahid drones, which were all shut down. The overnight attacks reportedly took place across southern and central areas of Ukraine at a time when the war will soon enter its third year. Amid the clashes, Poland's Prime Minister Donald Tusk visited Kiev where he pledged his nation's support to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He also vowed to solve tensions with Polish truckers and farmers who were recently protesting at the Polish-Ukrainian border. Amid fears that cheaper Ukrainian products and services will enter the market, leading to more competition. Iran, in the news, threatens to attack Israel after airstrike. Iran suggested Saturday it would attack Israel after a deadly strike in Syria killed several members of Iran's elite Revolutionary Guards. A foreign ministry spokesperson, Nassar Kanaini, told state media, Iran reserves its right to respond to the organized terrorism of the fake Zionist regime at the appropriate time and place. He condemned the killing of at least four members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria's capital Damascus on Saturday as a desperate attempt to spread instability in the region. Tehran was quick to blame Israel for the attack, but there was no immediate comment from Israel's government. However, the strike came shortly after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu suggested Israel is attacking Iran, apparently on several fronts. Kanaani also condemned frequent violations of Syria's sover sovereignty and territorial integrity and an escalation in aggressive and provocative attacks by Israel. The rising Israel-Iran tensions came as news emerged that several Iran-backed groups, including the IRGC, are coordinating with Houthis in Yemen to attack ships in the Red Sea. Iran's IRGC commanders and Lebanon's Hezbollah group are on the ground in Yemen, helping to direct and oversee 
Houthi attacks on Red Sea shipping, according to several security sources. Iran, which has armed, trained, and funded the Houthis, stepped up its weapons supplies to the militia as a result of the war in Gaza. The war erupted after Iranian-backed fighters of Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, killing at least 1,200 people in the worst atrocity on Israeli soil since the current state of Israel's foundation over 75 years ago. That's international news. Stand by for a break, and then we'll talk about some things happening in the nation of the United States. Can't turn the light out Every word, every line Carries to myself Dark letters on a page Singing so loud Where did I go wrong? I'm so To have found you and still be looking for you It's the soul's paradox of love I fill my cup, I lift it up for more
By now, I'm sure that most of you have heard that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended uh, his presidential campaign. Uh, so uh, what's happening now is that the, actually, as I speak, they are having the primary in New Hampshire. And uh, according to a recent CNN University of New Hampshire poll, uh, most New Hampshire uh, DeSantis voters will back Donald Trump over Nikki Haley. Um, of the DeSantis supporters surveyed, 62% affirmed they would switch their support to Trump. In contrast, a smaller proportion, 30%, named former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley as their next preferred candidate. The poll involved 2,348 likely Republican voters canvassed from January 16th through the 19th, which was a few days before DeSantis suspended his campaign. Governor DeSantis called off his presidential run on January 21st before the New Hampshire primary. He announced his support for Trump while taking a jibe at Haley, referring to her as an echo of the old Republican guard. The decision came only two days before the New Hampshire primary, adding further uncertainty to the voting landscape. In response to DeSantis' withdrawal, Haley addressed a gathering of her supporters with May the Best Woman Win. The once crowded Republican field navigating the New Hampshire primary has seen an unexpected turn with the Florida governor's exit, leaving his supporters to choose between the two remaining high-profile candidates. In Washington, D.C., thousands attended the annual March for Life, and it was sub-freezing. The United States annual National March for Life was held for the 51st consecutive year on Friday, as thousands of pro-life activists gathered in sub-freezing temperatures in Washington, D.C., to walk to the U.S. Capitol and the Supreme Court in protest against abortion. The March for Life protest against abortion has been held every January since the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade that abortion is a federal right. The March for Life website said March for Life is a non-sectarian organization that promotes the beauty and dignity of every human life by working to end abortion, uniting, educating, and mobilizing pro-life people in the public square. The march has continued to take place despite the current Supreme Court reversing Roe v. Wade in the 20. 22 case of Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. As the High Court returned jurisdiction on abortion to individual states to decide, pro-life activists are concerned the procedure is still readily available in Democratic-run states especially. They want to see restrictions placed on the availability of terminations nationwide. Jean Mancini, president of the March for Life, explained in a website statement, though legislation protecting the life or protecting life remains critical, even more important is the work of changing hearts and minds. That's why we will continue marching at the state and federal level until our nation's laws reflect the basic truth 
that all human life is created equal and is worthy of protection. Emphasizing the need to care for the mothers of the unborn, this year's March theme was with every woman for every child. News of the Church, coming up after this break.
question of the day, what do missionaries wish they had known before they first went to the field? I want to give you two answers from two different people. The first answer comes from Scott in Peru, who served with iProjects in Cuba and Peru for five years. He says, I wish I'd known how amazing it was going to be. I would have wanted to know how exciting, rewarding, challenging, and amazing it was going to be. Being 51 with three kids, two adolescents and a six-year-old, making a decision to sell everything and move to Peru was a decision that didn't come quickly or without struggles. The Lord called, we obeyed, and he showed us that all this was possible. If you are in a season of questioning missions, I can tell you to go and go quickly. Do not waste another minute. The harvest is plenty and the workers are few. He goes before us and lays out our path, so be obedient and follow. The second answer comes from Tim, who has served for 25 years with Wycliffe Bible Translators and Cameroon and the United States. He said, I wish I had known how difficult missions really is. I would have gotten more cross-cultural training, especially focused on the culture to which I was going. I would have taken more time in language learning. But most of all, I needed realistic expectations. Working in the foreign field is the same as being in a war. I know, I fought in both, and the similarities are striking. There's not much glorious about warfare. It may look exciting on TV or in the movies, but in the trenches it's a lot of hard work and the enemy has ambushes everywhere. Often you can't tell the enemy from the friendly and your friends get injured and killed. It hurts. The culture won't make a bit of sense and you'll even resent the people sometimes or think how they do things is ridiculous. But you'll learn how to live there. You'll learn new cultural cues. You'll begin to see how they do make sense in your new culture. And in the learning, you'll grow to love the people. So learn to laugh at yourself. Don't give up. When you go, determine that you're going to stay. It's like God meant marriage to be. It won't always be easy. But make it work. Don't expect the other person to change. Change as you need to. And there's probably no better environment to promote change in us than working in another culture. This week in Christian history, a fellow by the name of Lot Carey leaves America for Africa on January 23rd, 1821. And so you ask, who is Lot Carey, or who was Lot Carey? Well, this week marks the anniversary of when Lot Carey, a former slave born in Virginia, became the first African-American missionary to Africa when he left for Sierra Leone to found a mission post. He eventually became the acting governor of Liberia. Carey left the United States with his wife and three children, accompanied by a couple of other missionaries, but faced financial difficulties early on in his evangelism efforts. 
After they arrived in Sierra Leone, they were confronted with financial difficulties when they discovered that the American Colonization Society had neglected to purchase land, which left the team without any means of support, according to Leslie Hildreth of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board. In conjunction with his missionary activities, Kerry served as health officer and government inspector in Liberia. While in Liberia's capital, he pastored several churches and established the Monrovia Mission Society among the Liberian Christians to raise support for missions and communicate the need to Christians in America. Also this week in Christian history, the first woman was ordained in the Anglican Communion on January 25th, 1944. This week, marks uh, the anniversary when Florence Lee Tim Oi of Hong Kong became the first woman to be ordained a priest in the Worldwide Anglican Communion. Bishop Ronald Hall presided over the ordination in Macau, which occurred amid the violent upheaval of World War II and the destabilizing Japanese occupation of much of China. After the war, Lee agreed to relinquish her priestly vows in response to opposition from the broader leadership of the Anglican Church, though she did continue to serve in various ministerial roles under the communist Chinese regime. In 2018, Lee was added to the Episcopal Church's lesser feasts and feast calendar of saints, along with former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and Paul Murray the first African-American woman to be ordained a priest, or excuse me, Paul Lee Murray, who was the first African-American woman to be ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. In 2023, Christians faced a record level of violent attacks. The International Christian Persecution Watchdog Group opened doors warned in its latest annual report about a dramatic increase in violence against Christians and places of worship worldwide, as nearly 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Open Doors is an organization that monitors persecution and supports the church in over 60 countries. It released its World Watch List 2024 on Wednesday, documenting trends and ranking the 50 worst countries in the world when it comes to Christian persecution. According to the data, at least 13 Christians were killed for their faith per day in 2023 on average, with 4,998 Christians killed in the World Watch List 2024 yearly reporting period that ended on September 30, 2023. At least 14,766 churches and Christian properties were attacked worldwide during that time, with Open Doors reporting a sevenfold increase in attacks on churches and Christian-run schools, hospitals, and cemeteries. The report states, attacks on churches and Christian properties skyrocketed in 2023 as more Christians than ever recorded faced violent attacks. Open Doors warns that more than 365 million, that is one in seven, Christians 
face high levels of persecution for their faith. Ryan Brown, the chair, uh, chief executive officer rather, of Open Doors U.S., speculated that one of the reasons for the increase in violence against Christians is that the perpetrators feel that they can act without fear or repercussions. While things may differ depending on the country, Brown called on governments in these regions to protect Christians, including through laws they may already have on the books. As the leader of the watchdog, watchdog group noted, Jesus warned Christians repeatedly that they would face hatred and abuse for their faith. It's ironic, but we actually see the fingerprints of Christ all over this, Brown said. What the enemy would intend for evil actually has the opposite effect. In many cases, it both emboldens and strengthens the church in those contexts. Brown continued, We see our brothers and sisters around the globe in the face of mounting violence, counting the cost, and recognizing that the kingdom of God is there. Their pursuit and relationship with Christ is worth more than the violence that they endure, the persecution that they suffer. North Korea was again ranked number one as the country where Christians face the greatest difficulty in preaching and practicing their faith. Open Door says that becoming a Christian in North Korea is effectively a death sentence because they will be deported to labor camps as political criminals or they will be killed on the spot. Meeting for worship is almost impossible and must be done in utmost secrecy and at grave risk. Open Door states in a North Korea fact sheet, in May 2023, five members of a family were arrested as they gathered for prayer and Bible study. Christian literature was also confiscated. The group had reportedly been meeting on a weekly basis and their arrest followed a tip-off by an informant. Open Doors also highlighted the violence against Christians in sub-Saharan countries, where 26 countries in this region ranked at or above high levels of persecution. 15 of the 26 sub-Saharan countries with scores at or above high were ranked extremely high in the violence subcategory. In 18 of the 26 sub-Saharan countries with at least high overall levels of persecution, the 12-month reporting period for the 2024 list, which concluded 30 September 2023, there were no recorded killings in the remaining eight of those 26 countries. Nigeria, which is ranked number three, accounted for nine out of ten religiously motivated killings in the, sub -sub in the sub Saharan countries on the World Watch List. Open Door states that the number of killings in these areas is likely to be higher as conflicts are ongoing and that makes it challenging to really obtain fully reliable data. Members of radical groups such as Boko Haram and the Islamic State West Africa province disproportionately target Christians in Nigeria. Open Doors also highlighted a Paramalam Peace Foundation report that stated 315 Christians and 31 Muslims were killed in a series of attacks against Christian communities in the Plateau State. From December 23 
through Christmas. Terrorists, believed to be extremists among Fulani Muslim herdsmen, killed nearly 200 people and injured 300 in a coordinated attack on multiple village, villages in predominantly Christian areas in the Plateau State. Open Doors addressed the treatment of Christians in China, which ranked number 19. Um, were the, were, were it also ranked among the 10 countries where churches were the most likely to be attacked. In China, 10,000 churches were closed or attacked according to the World Watch List of 2024. So, so by far the largest number of churches closed down can be seen in the so-called house churches in China. This term in the Chinese context has often been misleading, although house churches initially began as small unregistered house groups gathering for worship, many grew immensely, holding their meetings in public places like hotel facilities or rented office floors. These churches frequently had hundreds or even thousands of Christians attending every week. But that freedom is now over, due in part of, to the authorities taking advantage of measures enforced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. House churches have now returned to their roots, splintered into a myriad of less visible house groups, many with little pastoral leadership and few resources. One way that Brown proposed the United States government could protect persecuted Christians would be to incentivize countries that desire a place on the global, global stage to expand religious freedom protections. China has become a financial powerhouse, but religious liberties are not accompanying that, Brown said. I certainly think that policies that would couple those things together, that would allow those who desire to be trade partners and things along those lines, that they would guarantee those basic human rights. Brown said even more important in politics is the power of prayer, calling on churches in America to uplift their fellow Christians. I think that the church has a tremendous opportunity to support our brothers and sisters through prayer, Brown said. It continues to humble me and amaze me to hear from those around the globe and how much they are encouraged just by knowing that they are not forgotten, that they are not alone, and that they are brothers and sisters around the globe who are lifting them up in prayer. Coming up, a devotional thought.
Welcome back, and let me give you a devotional thought or two about courage. Someone once said that a hero and a coward are both scared, but a hero runs in the right direction. Recognizing that courage is not the absence of fear, but the overcoming of it, will you join me and countless others in asking God for boldness that this might be our finest hour? Erwin Lutzer in his book, When a Nation Forgets God, cited a German eyewitness in the 40s who was part of a church that was flanked by railroad tracks. He wrote, We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because we felt what could anyone do to stop it. Each Sunday morning, we would hear the train whistle blowing in the distance, then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sounds of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming. And when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly. And soon, we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it now, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. At the pinnacle of his power in the mid-1940s, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party had only 8.5 million members out of almost 80 million Germans. 90% of the German population, the workers, the pastors, the teachers, the farmers, the homemakers, and the youth were passive and compliant in the face of the growing evil. 
When courage was needed to confront the menace, it was too late. In my study, I have these quotes from two of my heroes. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. That was William Wilberforce. Another one says, If you will not fight for right, when you can easily win without bloodshed, if you will not fight when your victory is sure and not too costly, you may come to the moment when you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival. There may even be a worse case. You may have to fight when there is no hope of victory because it is better to perish than to live as slaves. That was from Winston Churchill. But there's another quote I want to give you, and it's in Jeremiah 12.5, which says, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe, in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Let us take a lesson from Joshua, who was told to be courageous and to not fear and follow in the steps of those that have gone before us that have decided to stand fast and obey God rather than men. Let us take a break and hear better than a hallelujah.
Thank you for hanging out with me this hour. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Hey, if you would like to share an idea or a thought, or if you have any questions about On Call for God, uh, feel free to either email me or you can write a letter. In fact, if you wrote a letter, you could go against the grain where some places they have stopped teaching cursive, and you could practice your cursive. But anyway, you can... Mail it to On Call for God, P.O. Box 3015 in Forney, Texas, 75126. If you're writing from overseas, uh, put USA on it and it should get to me. Um, email is obviously the easiest way of getting in touch, but um, you can also do the, the snail mail uh, method. Anyway, email address is J-O-S-E-R. J-O-S-E-R at crossnetglobal.com. Hoping to hear from you. God bless. Bye-bye. I have decided I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back on the deceiver. I'm going to live what I believe.
Keep your eyes on him and-